<laughs> unelected, unaccountable elites, I'm afraid it's time to say you're fired. We're going to take back control. Take back control has been the slogan of the year. Don't worry, we'll take our country back very soon. But what does it really mean? Take back control. It's episode two of our special six-part series of the weekly economics podcast. My name is Kirsty Stiles and this is Really Take Control. I'm not a hopeless optimist, but I also feel really passionately about not putting everybody who voted leave into the same box. This week, how can we really take control of our environment in a post-Brexit world? I'm joined by familiar guest Dave Powell, Environment Leader at the New Economics Foundation. Hello, Dave. Hello. And we're also joined for the very first time by writer, campaigner and senior associate of environmental think tank E3G. That's Ruth Davis. Hello, Ruth. Hello there. So, uh, now that we've apparently taken taken back control uh, by leaving the EU, what do you think that means for our environmental policy? Ruth? Well, it means a lot because um, actually a huge amount of our environmental protections in the UK are ones that we share with the European Union. A lot of our laws that protect our clean air and water and the climate are things that we've developed over decades with the EU. Um, we also have a lot of policies that work with the EU. So our agriculture policy, for example, was developed because we trade with the EU as our kind of primary trading partner. That's very important. And we've also spent um, years working very closely alongside the EU and in many cases actually negotiating as part of the EU in international agreements like the Climate Change Agreement. So it is a big deal. And unfortunately, during the campaign, people, I think, didn't necessarily realise how much of a big deal it was. Um, it was interesting when you spoke to people, uh, you know, just kind of knocking on doors and chatting in the street, that they sort of took for granted the fact that actually we in the UK really care about our environment and therefore all of that stuff would probably be OK. But there's a huge amount of work to do to disentangle ourselves and make sure it's fine now. Yeah, I almost don't think I heard anything more about it, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the big environment groups were making a big play of going out and saying the EU is generally a good thing for our environment, but it just wasn't really the thing that was top of the debate. You know, it wasn't none of the politicians on Newsnight were being asked about it or that sort of thing, which is a huge shame because actually it's hard to think of an area that, you know, had had so much come from the EU and where now that we're no longer going to be in the EU, there's so many questions about what it all means. Okay, Dave, do you think that taking back control leaving the EU um, will be used as an excuse to tear up some of those environmental commitments that we've just outlined? Well, it uh, could be. So there is the, the flip side of the uh, of the environment not featuring in the EU stuff very much is there's no mandate. So well, the vote is not a mandate to tear up anything about the environment. It wasn't a vote on that. It wasn't what people were voting for. Um, now, there are some people who have wanted the UK to do less on the environment for quite a while. People who think that trees and stuff like that get in the way of making lots of money. And those people are <laughs> going to probably take this opportunity to uh, say, well, look, now we need to put our economy first and competitiveness first and that sort of thing. But actually, you know, there isn't people, there's still a huge popularity out there. There's still a huge support for environmental protection. You know, renewable energy is still really popular. We have this image of a green and pleasant land. And it's not a given that just because we're not in the EU anymore, um, we're suddenly going to tear all this up. But there's a, a lot to fight for, I think. Especially those money tree investors, I bet they're, 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 they're still doing well. So Ruth, are there any 
opportunities uh, after Brexit? Do you think that good things could happen for the environment? Yes, I think there, there, there could be good things. And I think it is really worth reminding ourselves about that issue of popularity that Dave was talking about. Um, I, I, about 24 hours after the, the referendum, I was having a chat with a taxi driver, as you do. Um, he was a Leave voter. He was also a member of the RSPB, passionate birdwatcher. I had a bit of a chat with him about what he thought was going to happen. And he was like, well, it's going to get better, isn't it? Because we really care about the environment in the UK, so it's bound to get better, so we can make our laws better. And I think if we're able to capture some of that enthusiasm, there's a lot that we can do. And we also ought to remember that there's always a balance between cooperating with lots of different countries to do something at a kind of central level, and the risk that that cooperation results in um, kind of laws and and rules that are very distant from people in their ordinary everyday lives. And I certainly know lots of examples, for example, around the common agricultural policy, which we're a sort of part of, where some of those rules just seemed really perverse to people. They didn't necessarily work for farmers and they didn't really work for the environment. And so if I was going to be kind of confident, I would I would be thinking about the places where genuinely we can actually start to craft solutions that are much, much more about what people need and want at a local level, where actually there isn't necessarily this ideological conflict between getting on, having a job, earning some money and looking after the environment. Most people want to do both. But I mean, that's right. And I think this is a time of sort of opportunity, but also threat. And I think we need to sort of have that have that balance. So uh, farming policy didn't work very well. I was on here well, a few months ago talking about it and all the things, you know, that, that are wrong with that. And we could definitely do farming policy in a better, greener, more popular kind of way. But, you know, we do also need to bear in mind there are people who will want to use Brexit as an excuse just to cut regulation. I mean, we've had deregulation as a thing, the cutting of protections, the cutting of standards going on in the UK for really quite a long time already. And there's a risk of that being accelerated as part of this, looking at our economy and saying, well, you know, now we're in this new uh, uncertain world where our economy has to be put first. We need to get rid of that regulation over there, that regulation over there, and green crap is a barrier to competitiveness. So we need to do both, I think. We need to be looking for the opportunities, but also being very alert to the danger. And I'm, I'm a bit wary of people who say it's all opportunity, which isn't, isn't what <laughs> I, you were I'm saying. Sure, yeah, I'm sure yeah. I wouldn't say it was all opportunity. Yeah. I think, of course, of course, there are risks. And perhaps it's worth delving down in, a little bit more into the politics that sits behind some of the things that you were saying there, Dave, because um, it is certainly the case that there is a strand of political opinion um, that has, has suggested that our economy thrives best when there are the fewest rules possibly constraining that. But I don't think we should think that everybody who voted for Brexit and even all the politicians that advocated for Brexit are part of that deregulatory politics. It's a particular strand of thought. And there are actually quite a lot of people who voted for Brexit and indeed politicians who care about that, who were much more interested in the possibility of being able to regain parliamentary sovereignty. And there's a very interesting set of people who voted for Brexit who were voting actually rather specifically against the forms of liberalised global uh, economic governance that actually they feel have been bad for the environment and have also actually been been bad for people. I, I'm, I'm not a hopeless optimist, but I also feel really passionately about not um, putting everybody who voted leave and indeed every politician who wanted to leave into the same box. You know, deregulating neoconservatives are not the majority of people in this country and we shouldn't allow them to take the populist mantle and behave as if actually they have a mandate from what happened to do things here. Sounds like a crisis opportunity to me. So, Ruth, if you, you could, can you give us a few examples then of those t- kinds of people who might be looking to protect and improve our environment during this during this process? Well, I'll give you an example of something that uh, I, I worked on in the past that I thought was really fascinating and 
incredibly encouraging. I, I've worked on fisheries campaigns a lot and actually with quite a lot of people in, in, in NEF um, who have been great campaigners around looking after the interests of small fishermen. Our, our inshore f- fleet did incredibly badly on the, under the common fisheries policy. The common fisheries policy was not a good policy for either fishermen or the environment. With a lot of hard work, it's possible to go out into communities and build relationships between the people on the kind of receiving end of these policies who will say to you, yeah, if you if you can make sure that you work with us in order to be able to support our jobs, we will work with you to be able to make sure that we can protect the environment. But that is really hard work. It involves organising and building relationships at the level of communities or at the level of sectors with people. It doesn't necessarily always involve having a big fight at the Westminster or Whitehall level about, you know, kind of the, the rights and wrongs of pieces of regulation. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we need to remember is what, over the last 10 years, you look at climate change and how that's gone from being a sort of fringe thing that was originally seen as a threat to business to now basically a thing that business gets. You know, they're Federation of British Industry, huge amounts of business, see the economic economic opportunities of it. Let's go ahead, let's build stuff here. We can be the place that makes all the wind turbines, right? And they don't want this disrupted any more than anyone else does. And I think actually you, it's it's business that wants to continue to have that stability that might say, no, look, we've, we've backed this horse. We're in it for green industries, green technologies, and we want to continue to be so. Um, they're already saying that and then they're going to say more of that, I'd imagine. Okay, so any unusual potential allies out there? Any big names that we should be looking out for in terms of those to uh, protecting our environment? Well, I've already mentioned that I think there's a huge possibility for us to work with uh, the sustainable farming industry and, and, and fishery sector to kind of rebuild those policies. And Dave's talked about, um, you know, potentially working with quite large swathes of business. I mean, some of the, the the more interesting and kind of, you know, odd conversations that I think have been going on recently are around, for example, our car industry and where we're going with the future of the car industry. Because exactly as Dave says, actually, we've geared ourselves up in some way to uh, be a leader around ele- electric vehicles. Now, I, I, you know, if you're in that place and you've invested in new models and you're looking forward to the technologies and putting in the supply chains around that, then the last thing you want is a huge disruption, which potentially actually gives a competitive advantage to other companies who produce dirtier cars outside of the UK. So this is not a straightforward split, really. Um, so if you were in charge of Brexit, then, uh, guys, uh, what would your key few priorities be uh, for the Brexit negotiations and our environment? Crikey, Moses. Well, I think the thing you need to get right first of all, so there's a way that European law used to work, and it has this thing called the precautionary principle, was kind of the basis of the way European law works, which basically says, uh, if you think something might be dangerous, you ban it until you prove that it isn't which is the kind of opposite of, of other ways of doing it, like how the USA does stuff when it says you, you know, we, we'll keep doing it until you prove that it's dangerous. Now, we, we're going through this whole big process of taking European law wholesale into UK law through this thing called the Great Repeal Bill. But we don't have some of the underlying sort of principles that made European law so strong from the EU. We don't have that in UK law. We need to get those principles in somehow. And the whole process of the Great Repeal Bill needs to be sort of cracked open a bit. It isn't clear what ministers think they're going to do. They think they're going to take everything wholesale into the UK and then through things called what are called Henry VIII clauses. So basically, just going to take away the bits they don't like, chop the head off. <laughs> the bits that they don't like. So we need to get some of these principles right. And I think right now what we need is is all anyone who cares about the environment or broader social protections, people who basically say, let's have a principle that we're not going to do environmentally damaging stuff and then wait until it can be proven that it isn't, but we'll do it the other way around. So it's these points of principle at the moment that I think are the highest priority. 
Yeah, and I probably come at it um, from the other way up, I think. Um, I mean, I, I worked on nature conservation policy for years. And I, you know, my, my kind of background is I was motivated by really kind of loving the natural world and all the kind of variety in it. And yet, despite the fact that we've had this amazing body of environmental law for many years, the reality is that nature in this country and in the world in general has been in terrible decline. And, you know, I'm sure lots of people would have been watching Planet, Planet Earth too, um, how stunning it is, but also feeling a sense of hopelessness about trying to protect all those amazing things. Now, we've spent a lot of time putting laws in place. I, I would like now to have an idea of environmental policy that is about restoring nature and about putting things back. And that actually means building really, really strong coalitions across people with, with, with people on the ground. I mean, I, I think if you were to take soils in the UK, for example, um, you know, which I know is not the world's most fashionable subject, but actually the reality is if you don't have good soil, you can't grow food point blank. And also you can't in any way look after the natural world. Now, if we would put together a coalition that was all about restoring the foundations of our ability to grow food, the way we manage land and looking after the natural environment, I think we could start a new political movement which would make it much easier to do some of the things at a kind of regulatory level that actually we've tried to do for years, but perhaps a very important but are not necessarily going to get us onto a much more positive footing to put things back. Okay, making people positive about soil. I like it, Ruth. So uh, do you think a lot of this, you know, what you just talked about with the Great Repeal Bill, a lot of this is about keeping EU environmental agreements. Do you think people will be kind of happy with that as a premise? Uh, I don't think that's the premise to go and sell the nation on, but I think that there's two basic ways of looking at it. First is there's an awful lot of stuff it's just going to continue to make sense to do with other European countries, like, for example, chemicals looking after chemicals. Massive great bit of law comes from Europe, thing called REACH, chemical safety, right? It's in everyone's interest that we just stay being part of that somehow. Now, whether or how the politics of that all works, we don't know. A lot That also applies to just anything where there's kind of international cooperation eh? is a good thing. Yeah, air pollution, that's another one where, you know, it just makes sense to join up and do this kind of, do this all together. Um, a lot of other stuff is more in the opportunity sort of space, I guess, where we do get the chance to do things again from scratch and whether or not we do them well or badly kind of depends on what politicians hear and how important they hear this is. And, and that, I think, is where Ruth's absolutely spot on. Ruth, do you think it, it makes sense to talk about taking control of our environment? Uh, do you think that message will ring, ring true with people? And what does it actually really mean in practice? What can people actually do? I think people can do a lot, whether it makes sense to, to, to speak about taking control of our environment. I mean, I, I suppose the way I would look at that is that, you know, this is a very crowded island and it's actually quite a, a sort of busy world these days. There are very few parts of it where we haven't, as human beings, had an influence over our environment. So I think I might say, yes, it's probably about taking control, but what goes with that is also taking responsibility for the, thing, the things that we that we do. Um, I, I actually think people are really, are really up for that. Um, you know, what doesn't feel great to people is when they kind of, feel as if the control and responsibility are kind of coming at them uh, from people they don't know from an enormous distance. So um, yes, to a certain extent, we can take back control, we can take responsibility. But also, actually, I think there are so many benefits that we can get from rebuilding a better relationship with the with the environment around food, around flooding, around air, all kinds of things. So it's not a ridiculous slogan, but it's got a lot more to it than it looks like on the surface. Don't blame me, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in some areas, it, it makes a lot more 
sense. So look at energy, for example, where you've got what's happening to renewable energy is increasingly enabling people to do stuff for themselves. They don't need to turn on a switch and their relationship is just you know, energy comes out the pipes. But you can put solar panels, you can have uh, batteries in your basement, you can have electric cars and you can become your own little power station and you can do it by yourself or you can do it with communities or your school can do it or whatever. And, and actually, that's one of the things that I think uh, if you the environment is a sort of broader nebulous thing and I'm not even sure what it means anyway mm. but the things that actually affect what sort of environment we get the level of carbon emissions that we have you know the sort of food that we buy a lot of that is basically about local choices and people being able to do a lot of that for themselves so I think it does make a huge amount of sense um, and it's popular as well that's the thing you know people want to have that stake in their local economy and in absolutely. their energy system yeah, yeah absolutely um, I think one thing that we haven't spoken about and is, is a really interesting question is the extent to which um, the UK wants to uh, define its role in the world as being, um, you know, for example, a leader. I mean, it's been a leader on, on international climate change for a long period of time. We've had probably the longest consistent cross-party political consensus, certainly in any Anglophone country, um, anywhere. Now, you know, there there is some uh, evidence and some possibility that actually if the UK wants to go and forge a new role in the world, one of the things that it can do is go and argue around its actually quite admirable record on some of those things and suggest that this is a place where it still has something to offer into the international community. And again, I think, you know, actually most people don't necessarily want to just turn in us on ourselves. I think they do see that we're part of a connected world and they want to feel proud of what our country is doing in the in the outside world. It's it's something to do with one sense of patriotism that we're actually behaving, behaving well, setting a good example and helping others. Okay, so the, the elephant in the room, not in this room, uh, although our listeners can't uh, can't see into into the world of the, the weekly economics podcast. I guarantee that the elephant is not in this room right now. <laughs> Only yeah. mentally, we've been, we've been ignoring him. <laughs> um, Trump, of course. Uh, what do you think this means for international agreements, for global work on climate change, for America's role in climate change? Uh, you know, all of the all of these big issues. Can you give us any kind of future-looking statements, Dave? Can I tell you what the future is going to be like? No. Um, is it ideal that the world's largest economy is now? ruled over by a guy who said climate change was a Chinese plot to enslave the US economy. No, that's not ideal. It's not a good thing that he has probably by the time you listen to this already started to dismantle all the architecture of climate that um, President Obama had put in. But I think um, there's a couple of things about this. No, this is the genie is out of the bottle, right? The world has started to get climate change in a way that, as I was saying earlier, in a way that it, it really didn't just a few years ago. You know, Donald Trump cannot stop China plowing huge amounts of money into renewables. In fact, if anything, he might only encourage them to do so. He can't stop the hundreds of thousands of people that go and march. He can't make renewable energy stop plummeting in price. He can't do anything about these things. He can definitely mess a lot of stuff up. He can definitely slow US emissions down. And there's a few people doing analysis saying that the amount of slowing down he can do might be the difference between whether we tip over into two degrees or not. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you think, Ruth. I mean, it's not great, but I, I think the real danger would be to say, right, that's it. He's, he's beaten us. It's, let's all go home. I think actually we should do the opposite and say this guy's not going to stop us. And if you look at it, you know, I think that's probably about right. Yeah, I, could, I I agree with that, and in, and you know this is a generational problem. I mean, I, I I'm I, I'm older than the people in this room, and I've been working on it for a long time. And I got to the point where I kind of realised that there was no way that the problem was sort of somehow going to be solved in my lifetime, and certainly not over an electoral cycle. 
it is our ability to be able to continue to work hard with each other and cooperate in the places where you can make progress whilst managing the problems in places that you can't that has got us so far down the line. And I'm pretty confident that actually the international community is resilient to this. Um, you know, I've just come back from Marrakesh where people are working incredibly hard to make sure that almost every other country out there that's committed to the agreement is making public statements about that. China's already recommitted. Brazil has recommitted the European Union. India, Japan, the list goes on day the by Paris. day. The Paris Agreement, which was signed last year and is the thing that Donald Trump is threatening to, to, to withdraw from. I think also, you know, I mean, uh, it, this is this is a, a clearly a, 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 a grim state of affairs from, from the, the, the perspective of, you know, kind of broader uh, progressive politics in the in the US. But we should we should remind ourselves that whilst Donald Trump made those statements about it being a Chinese conspiracy, as, as I understand it, he, he and his entire family before 2009 in the Copenhagen talks, signed a business letter calling on the United States government to take action on climate change. So we are in a very strange topsy-turvy world. Um, and there's a huge amount of evidence, actually, that um, it, there's so much popular support for renewable energy and renewable energy support in the US that it will be very difficult, actually, to dismantle a lot of what's been done over the course of the last few years. Our job is to focus on a generational challenge, work with those who are able to make progress, drive technological change, support people who are suffering the problems of climate change. And as Dave absolutely says, not um, risk falling into despair because we fundamentally have a responsibility to deal with the problem. And it's one electoral cycle, you know, or maybe two, who knows. But we've been through some of this before. We can cope. We will cope. I don't think it's going to be credible for Donald Trump to be a climate denier on the world stage. I just don't, you look at the stuff he was saying, I mean, you know, we don't know whether he meant it in the first place. Yeah, his golf course in Ireland has got, a, he's built a new seawall around it to guard against sea level rise. It isn't going to be credible for the president of America to go around the world and say climate change is a made up thing designed to trick us all. So he's going to have to backtrack from that. So this is one of the things we don't know exactly, as with a lot of stuff he said somewhere else, exactly how much of what he said was just posturing and how much is what he thinks. It's just important to say that actually Ruth's totally spot on, that in practice he's going to find it a lot harder to rule America in the way that he's talked about climate in the past, I think. Wow, that's really quite, quite confusing statements from Donald Trump. Hopefully he's just like three toddlers piled on top of each other and, uh, you know, we'll have to do the election again when we all, all realise that. Nobody wants to be the guy that ruins the world anyway. So, thank you so much, Ruth, for joining us today. Dave, as always, thank you uh, for uh, taking on a challenging uh, topic in interesting times. Uh, we'll be back next Monday for the third episode of our series, Really Take Control. Uh, I'll be joined by another pair of friendly experts to talk about how we can take control of work and our working lives. People don't have the ability to balance out that power anymore. There is no guarantee at the moment that if you have a job, you have a job that pays the bills. So stay tuned and we'll see you then. So gang, you've made it this far uh, and if you like what you've heard and want others to hear it too, please send it to a friend, uh, leave us a cheeky review on iTunes and at the very least, please give us some stars. We'll be back at the same time next week. Bye.